Welcome to Bitcoin ETC, your monthly pass to eToro's Crypto Spotlight, where we delve into the realm of prominent and well-rooted crypto trends that truly matter. I'm Anthony Pompliano, also known as Pomp, alongside Will Clemente, my partner at Reflexivity Research, and we're here to ensure you stay ahead of what truly counts. So buckle up and let's go. This podcast is for information and education purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice, a personal recommendation, or an offer of or solicitation to buy or sell any financial instrument. This material has been prepared without taking into account any particular recipient's investment objectives or financial situation and has not been prepared in accordance with the legal and regulatory requirements to promote independent research. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All right, guys, bang, bang. You got me and Will here. Uh, Will, I thought a great place for us to start this conversation, Bitcoin ETFs for about 45 days since they were uh, approved, $6 billion in net inflows. Is this a success or is there still more kind of, you know, waiting that we need to do before we can declare victory? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of that kind of depends on who's the, the type of buyer that we've seen. But I would say to date, it seems like the answer has been yes. Um, and I don't even know if, if the answer being yes or no necessarily matters. I think the more important question to be asking is whether the market perceives that that question is, is yes or no. Uh, and so put out this tweet yesterday and, and you mentioned it in kind of this long form post that you put out this morning. Uh, but I think at this point, given kind of the price performance after the launch of ETFs, anyone who's bought a Bitcoin ETF is now up at least 15%, if not more, uh, if they hadn't bought the absolute top of the, of the day of when it launched on uh, January 10th. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the perception from the market right now is going to be that these things are a success and then that probably draws in some of these more kind of momentum-based buyers. And so when we see these buyers coming in, how many of these buyers do you think are like buy and hold, similar to what the Bitcoiners have been, versus they're trying to trade this thing or they're going to, you know, the first sign of danger, dump it and, and kind of uh, make these things even more reflexive than maybe they are today? Yeah, my guess, just given kind of the price action of BTC, I would guess a lot of these uh, buyers lately have been kind of uh, savvy, fast-moving hedge funds as opposed to maybe pension funds or, people kind of passively allocating to BTC with a certain percentage of their portfolio. But we are starting to, and the reason why I say that, I guess it's important to kind of tag in there is, you know, as, as you know very well, but, you know, listeners maybe not, um, you know, it takes months for some of these entities and institutions to get board approvals to allocate to BTC or other assets in general. So some of these, some of these institutions didn't even think that the ETFs were going to get approved. So I think it, there's probably somewhat of a lag effect of a couple months of, of taking uh, of time that needs to be taken for these these kind of approval processes and, and board approval processes for people to start allocating. But it was interesting to see now, uh, posted this this morning, this is Fidelity Canada, which is, I guess, noteworthy to say it's a separate entity from uh, Fidelity Investments. Uh, but Fidelity uh, recommended that uh, clients should put 1% to 3% of their portfolio into crypto, uh, obviously including Bitcoin and, and the Bitcoin ETF that they offer. So it's interesting to see we are finally um, beginning to um, note some kind of integration of BTC and crypto into some of these uh, portfolio managers and, and kind of what they're recommending to their client base. When you look out at um, other market participants, maybe miners are like another big accumulator of Bitcoin uh, and potential sellers of Bitcoin. Are they following a similar uh, path to what the ETFs and, and these institutions are doing or are they doing something different? Yeah, I think the miners are an interesting one. So there's like a couple of dynamics to kind of be wary of. Um, one, I guess, is you don't need having coming up in just over a month. Uh, the having will cut the amount of supply coming onto the market in half, which will also cut 
uh, if Bitcoin price stays the same, uh, the USD value of revenue that these guys are bringing in from the block subsidy, not including the fees that are that are generated uh, and rewarded to miners, but the block subsidy will be cut in half to 450 Bitcoin a day. So in the short term, a lot of these miners will be running unprofitably. Um, but you know, assuming that the having has kind of this uh, supply shock effect on the market paired with the demand that we've seen of kind of you know just relentless inflows into these ETFs, uh, if Bitcoin price goes up, then that will offset that, that decline in uh, in the subsidy. But I think more importantly, a couple of interesting things to kind of note on miners uh, and, and why I personally uh, hold a few of them in my own personal portfolio uh, is I think people are maybe underestimating some of the developments that are taking place around Bitcoin, uh, both on some of these Bitcoin L2s that are now getting funded and, and we're starting to see some of these going live. And, you know, with things like stacks trading around all-time highs, I suspect that may garner some attention and kind of mind share around some of these things and maybe shine light on, on what some of these guys are building. Uh, and then the other piece is ordinals. So we've seen some of these kind of blue chip ordinals projects absolutely ripping over the last week. For example, Bitcoin puppets, which I don't have any of, but uh, they've about doubled over the last week or so. And you're starting to see some of these projects really popping off. And that's going to start to draw attention of, of more speculators coming in to kind of, uh, you know, make bets on these things. So all of that activity combined with uh, some of the L2s that are launching, as well as the, primarily the ordinal stuff, I think could be a, a stronger driver of fees than you know what we've had in the past in terms of uh, demand to, to interact on the Bitcoin base chain. And I don't necessarily know if, if that's fully priced into these miners. And so that's one thing I think that that'll be interesting to kind of continue to watch is, um, you know, is this activity outside of just uh, transacting BTC itself in, in the form of these L2s and, and ordinals? Does that persist? Uh, and then they're also, you know, what does that kind of translate to in terms of uh, in terms of revenue for some of these publicly traded miners? One of the things that uh, has been very fascinating to me is as these narratives kind of shift, many of the non-Bitcoin but Bitcoin-related entities have outperformed Bitcoin itself. So Bitcoin, you know, in the last six months up 120 uh, percent. Last year it was up like 160, 170 percent during 2023, but the miners were up, you know. Uh, two, three X uh, of that. The micro strategies of the world were outperforming. And so in the gold and the gold mining world, we see a separation where gold has performed kind of sideways to slightly up and the gold miners have really separated themselves and been the better investment. Do you expect that to happen here in uh, in the Bitcoin world as well? I think historically, when you just look at how these things trade relative to the underlying, they tend to just trade with beta to Bitcoin, meaning that if Bitcoin goes up, the miners usually go up more. If Bitcoin goes down, the miners usually go down more. Uh, and so in a bull market, maybe you want to hold a basket of miners or kind of uh, crypto exposed equities as opposed to BTC. But then on the way back down, uh, you definitely don't want to be holding them because we've seen them drastically underperform Bitcoin. So I think one kind of mental heuristic that I've developed specifically for the miners, but I think you could also apply this to things like MicroStrategy, which is basically a, a leveraged Bitcoin ETF. Um, is these things are very similar to kind of call options on BTC in the sense of, you know, you can't get liquidated on them, but if, if you expect BTC is going to be trading multiples higher, then you should expect that the miners are going to trade even higher than that. Um, and so in addition to some of the things that I, I just highlighted around, you know, maybe dark horses with the uh, kind of newfound activity around the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, just in the way that these things trade, I think if you if you expect that BTC trades higher, you know, whatever uh, whatever your price target is for BTC, I would expect that that miners as trading as B, as a beta to BTC uh, would be trading into higher than that. And when we go and we look at maybe the Fed, you know, this thing I wrote this morning uh, talked about um, 
okay, maybe people are buying Bitcoin because they think that the Fed doesn't have inflation under control and inflation could come resurging back. Is that even remotely close to kind of how you're thinking about it? Like, is this kind of sounding the alarm of inflation uh, resurgence? And so whether it's miners, whether it's institutional investors, the ETFs, like all these things are empowering people to get more exposure to Bitcoin, but really it's like this underlying fear of inflation. Yeah, I mean, last month we we saw, um, or a couple of weeks ago, we saw this uh, CPI print come in slightly higher than expectations. I mean, the broader trend of, of CPI has still been down over the last year or so. Uh, and then I think the more important thing, though, I, mean, I don't really think that that matters in terms of at least how I'm kind of positioning my own personal portfolio. When we kind of step back, what what really matters is kind of the fiscal situation. We've seen, you know, macro investors like uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, Paul Peter Jones, et cetera, uh, kind of uh, talking through this. Uh, and a couple of macro pundits that, that I follow closely, like Lynn Alden or, or Lou Groman. Um, if, when you look at kind of the fiscal situation, just the amount of debt that we have in the country, um, we have to debase the currency to be able to service that debt uh, in nominal terms, of course, not in real terms. Uh, and so for the government, and particularly the Treasury, uh, if we can have some degree of inflation, that's actually good for them because they're able to kind of inflate and, and debase, I should say, uh, debase the, the debt away. So I actually, you know, they're not going to come out explicitly say this, but I would argue that they probably want some mild degree of inflation. Of course, they don't want, you know, eight, nine percent like we had at the end of 2021. Um, but I think if it hovers above their, you know, uh, their target that they've been mentioning of two percent and hovers around three, four percent, I, I don't really think they're going to be that upset about it because actually, you know, if they can get real rates down, um, basically have, you know, if they can bring interest rates down or, or keep them flat and then you have inflation coming down, that actually brings down real rates. Uh, and so that actually helps them service the debt. So I would argue that uh, them, them having inflation slightly higher than what they've been saying their target is that actually secretly they probably want that to some extent. And is it unsustainable? You've been listening to Digest and Invest by eToro. For more information, use eToro.com.